0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Paul Daly. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from taboo authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SEL broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunnagara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made in this country. Now today on the show, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Paul Daly. Paul is a Walkley award-winning journalist, author, and essayist. His new novel, Jesus Town, is a compelling narrative that forces the lens up to colonial and contemporary attitudes towards First Nations peoples. As Patrick Renmark lands in the remote former mission town of Jesus Town, he is a broken man. He accepts he's the author of his own destruction, an affair that blew up in the public eye has caused a cascade of events that have destroyed his entire world with nowhere else to turn patrick begrudgingly accepts the commission to tell the story of his grandfather nathaniel renmark a commission that sees patrick returning to jesus town and facing another shame that drove him away from there decades before join me and paul as we dive in to jesus town hi hello paul how are you
1: very good how are you going
0: I am. I am doing really well, um, and thank you so much for taking the time. I understand you've got a busy morning.
1: Look, it's not a, it's not as busy as I thought it was going to
0: be. It's so cool. Well, look, it's it's good that we have that little bit of um, flexibility because I sure. I actually had to stop myself writing questions. I really, very much, am, if enjoyed is the right word for Jesus Town, I've re- yeah. I really got into it. So, good. looking forward to sinking my teeth in. Sure. Grand. All right, here we go. My name is Andrew Popel. It's my pleasure to be welcoming to the show, Paul Daly. Paul is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, author, and essayist. He is joining us with his new novel. It is called Jesus Town. Paul, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: G'day, Andrew. It's great to be chatting to you.
0: I've got so much I want to ask you about Jesus Town. I've been thoroughly uh, engrossed, gripped by this novel, but I'd like to start just by introducing our listeners to the story. We, we land on Patrick Renmark, he is arriving in the remote, former mission town of Jesus Town, a broken man. He accepts he's the author of his own destruction, his hubris, but it is with no good grace that he has accepted this escape. A commission to tell the story of his grandfather, Nathaniel Renmark, Rennie. Rennie's famous, or notorious, depending on who you ask, for saving the people, the custodians of the land around Jesus Town, colonised by white settlers. Rennie's shadow is everywhere, and discovering who he truly was, maybe more than Patrick is capable of. I've glossed over so much there, but I, I really wanted to get to the key points of both Patrick and Rennie. Jesus Town is this compelling narrative that forces a lens up to colonial and contemporary attitudes towards First Nations peoples I was really interested in where this all started for you what was your inspiration if that's the right word and the beginnings of this story
1: yeah it's a it's a good question Andrew and one that I've asked myself many many times um, and I'm not sure that I have a precise answer I mean some books some novels particularly sort of tend to sort of percolate almost as if by osmosis really and so I can't actually put my kind of finger on a precise date where I decided to to write this novel. But by way of explanation, I suppose, you know, for the past 10 years or so, I've been um, writing about um, the kind of less savoury aspects of colonialism on this continent um, and its impact on uh, all sort, in all sorts of ways on, on First Nations people, um, culturally, uh, emotionally, psychologically, physically. So, I was very much thinking and writing in that space for a long time, and one of the one of the really disturbing elements of that that I wrote a lot about was um, the theft of thousands and thousands and thousands of, of sets of ancestral um, human remains um, by anthropologists and others who collected them for all sorts of various reasons. And, and at one point, a few years ago. Probably close to 10 years ago, I found myself uh, in a room um, where the collection, for want of a better term, of these remains belonging to the National Museum of Australia was stored in cardboard boxes. Now, there were remains belonging to 600 people in that room. Developed a bit further, I wrote about this more and more, and then I went into the room with the permission of the local Ghana people, the people of the Adelaide Plains, belonging to the South Australian Museum. And there were, at this time, the remains belonging to 4,600 mostly Indigenous people in this room. So I really saw this as testimony, evidence of the colonial crime scene. Mm. I've been writing books for a long time, fiction and non-fiction, but I really felt that I was so enveloped in in this space and in this very disturbing space that it would be totally vapid of me to write another book that wasn't about these issues more broadly and specifically about, um, about ancestral remains and, and what they said about, um, the colonization of Australia. So that's really where the book took, 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 took form, I suppose. It was a, it was an idea broadly before then, but, um, the the focus on the remains came from from those things I think so that's probably it's been you know bubbling away for probably ten years as a thought.
0: Yeah, I want to ask a question that you put in the mouth of of Patrick through the narrative because I'm sure uh, myself included, many listeners will have been to institutions like this. They will have seen. Um, uh curated exhibitions that display if not human remains um, co- artifacts objects of cultural significance and Patrick asks I think it was about a painting um, that Rennie had why is it important Jericho challenges him we should take that we should return that to its people Patrick asks why it's it belongs to me it was it was my grandfather's why should I return it to its creators why why is it important that this process of repatriation should be on the agenda should be occurring
1: I, I guess there's there's all sorts of different objects you know under consideration for repatriation there's the the, the really kind of um priority issue of returning ancestral remains to country where they can be provenanced and they can't always be provenance because there's a spiritual element to that and that is that the the remains of the person need to go back to the country from which they came from in order for the spirit to rest. Um, I guess with artifacts, it's in some ways more, more complex. um, And uh, it depends what the artifacts are. Some of them, um, some of them involve uh, human hair. Mm -hmm. And again, where they do the human hair uh, has a spiritual element. it has um, it has a being, um, and that should not be taken away and kept in the British Museum, for example. The other objects, so art, weapons, all of that sort of stuff, you know, of which there is so much overseas and so much in our in our uh, institutions. A lot of it never seeing the light of day, you know, kept in storerooms, etc. It is a connection to often land from which people are dispossessed. Mm. Um, So, you know, they've had their land taken, they've had their culture taken. The land mostly is not going to be given back, although there is native title and land grants, of course, Mm. but that material culture um, can be returned. And that, that's why it's significant to, um, uh, to indigenous people. I mean, they will often say, "Hey, these are our family jewels. Um, how would you feel if the family silver was was taken? Yeah. You know, family silverware." So it's a it's a it's a kind of simple analogy, but I've heard that often.
0: Yeah, and I think you put those words into Jericho's mouth. He he refers to it as as the family silver in in talking about that. Look, I want to also acknowledge um, here. Like, I'm I'm a white man talking about this to you. We're we're both white, and it may seem that. Um, you know this. There is a missing piece of this conversation, but I think it is important that we're having this conversation because, by and large, these institutions are white institutions. They're controlled by um, inheritors of colonial wealth, stolen wealth, and um, you know, as white people talking to a white audience, it it is really it's important that I think the expression that is most often used is we do the work. We come to understand this history and where it and where it sits because the people who are advocating for the repatriation of um, artefacts, objects and and ancestral remains, often don't have the power of numbers that uh, are going to be listened to.
1: Well, that's, that's quite right, Andrew. And they often don't have the privilege of the sort of voice that you and I might have. Um, and... You know, this sort of goes to my motivation, which you haven't yet asked about, but right. maybe it was a, a question I sensed that was coming. And, and, you know, my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Islander friends, many of whom are writers and and um, and public intellectuals um, of various sorts, have sort of said to me over the decade or so that I have been writing in this space that they get really, really, really tired. Um, of feeling the pressure of doing all of that work that is explaining to non-Indigenous people why it's so important that the colonisers engage with these ideas and specifically, you know, every, every January, you know, this, this, this debate, for want of a better term, comes up and, and they end up having to explain to the coloniser why it is that mm. the colonised feel so incredibly fraught about the celebration of Invasion Day, um, Australia Day by white colonists um, they want others to do the work mm. of decolonisation, they want the colonisers to do some of that work so really this is me using what small influence I might have to to go into that space and I think it's really important as you say that, that we all own what happened and we all have a responsibility to do something about it, I mean one of my Aboriginal friends says often to non-Indigenous people who, you know, uh, are perplexed about this stuff. Well, what are, you, what are you going to give up? And by that, he doesn't mean um, he doesn't mean your land. What what he is talking about is your privilege. Mm. Um, and what are you going to share to to do some of this work? Yeah. So that that's sort of by way of where I'm
0: coming from. Yeah, true. And thank you for those words, because I think it is really important to foreground these conversations because, look, I'm just going to say it, Jesus Town is a, a ripping yarn. Like, it is it is a terrific novel to read, but I think part of the point would be missed if we weren't also thinking about what you were saying and not just enjoying the way you tell us. On that, I really want to get to the book in front sure, of us. Sure. <laughs> As Patrick descends into Rennie's archive, he's travelled to Jesus Town, and where Rennie has an extensive archive of every, seemingly everything he's ever touched in his life. You chronicle for us both the tumultuous history of the Renmark family and also the unfolding history of ongoing invasion and settlement into the 20th century. Now, the people are they're your fictional um, realisation of the First Nations, uh, inhabitants of the land around this fictional town. But much, much of what you are chronicling, though, it is not a million miles removed from historical fact. I'm very curious about why you chose fiction and, and at that there's a mix of personal drama, there's epistolary and um, I'm going to say found footage because we don't really have a term, I guess, for found recording. Um, yeah. Why did you choose fiction and those styles to tell this story?
1: Um, They're the really good questions. I I felt like having... Kind of spent a decade in nonfiction, you know, that is journalism, essays, um, etc. Writing about um, colonialism and all its, you know, many negatives in Australia. It's such a big story, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that were I to try to do a book on this, I would a nonfiction book that is. I wouldn't quite know where to start and I wouldn't know where to finish. And I didn't feel like I could do it justice because the violence that I was dealing with was so continental. It happened everywhere. And the the theft of the remains, which is a sort of a, a theme running through this book, as you know, was so widespread. I mean, it happened all across Victoria. It happened all across Tasmania. It happened in every state. You know, testimony to that is just the sheer number of, of bodies and body parts in that um collection in South Australia. So I really felt that I had to geodislocate it, if you like, mm. to to give it a national meaning. I I felt like were I to do it in a nonfiction book, I'd be stuck in volumes. I'd never I'd I'd never get to say entirely what I wanted to say. Mm. And I felt like in some ways a novel was a more accessible way for readers to grapple with it too. Um, You know, I think some readers are going to be upset by this book, Um, mostly uh, non-Indigenous readers, I I, I think, because I'm not telling Indigenous readers absolutely anything at all that they're not thoroughly conversant with because of the violence, um, the dispossession, um, the ongoing trauma that is in every pretty much every Indigenous family in in Australia.
0: I hear what you're saying about accessibility as well, because while I guess it would be, if you chose to write a voluminous history um, that chronicled things like frontier massacres and the ongoing violence of invasion, I mean, it would be a valuable resource. But it's not like that information's not out there. The information existing is is not the problem people can find these stories there are people writing about this accessibility is it's too easy to ignore stories that are are not easily discovered are not often told
1: yeah i mean that's a great um it's a it's a pervasive line isn't it well mm. why weren't we told well did you do the work mm. the information is there as you, as you say and you know i've I have that experience myself, you know. As um, a kid who was taught history in the 1980s at school, there was a lot I wasn't told. I mean, I was brought up in Melbourne. History for me was, you know, 1770, 1788, 1901, 1915. Um, John Batman, you know, the great benevolent civilizer, settled Melbourne. Nothing about his involvement in the massacres or being a syphilitic, you know, syphilitic grifter. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't until later in life that i started doing that work for myself um and you're right i was absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of material there and it's kind of a theme in this book i suppose you know the massacres and the dispossession was chronicled in great detail by the earliest um the earliest um colonizers and when journalism started happening here by them um, you know the diaries and newspapers of the days are absolutely replete with you know very very um detailed um, accounts of the massacres and the dispossessions um so yeah it it uh it's all it's all there mm. um, it's just a matter for, for um for you know, for those of us who should to, to go there to tell these stories.
0: I think Rennie's, Rennie's archive is a terrific metaphor of that, uh, you know, explosion of information. But if we, if we can't organise it, if it's not accessible, we can't get to it. I want to get also to another problem of hearing these stories, and that is competing narratives. Patrick arrives in what he, he considers exile. He has to tell Rennie's story. I do want to get to Patrick's story, but... Mm. Let's focus in here for a moment. Um, Patrick is an historian, or he considers himself an historian, but he's a writer of popular history. It's a style he describes as storyism, and he's a storyist. I think I'm saying that correctly. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I was really interested in this concept of storyism and its relationship with popular media narratives and the ways that we as a country consume our own national legends. Can you talk a little bit about... Patrick storyism and the way we consume and understand what we want to hear.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, look, Patrick is really he's a he is an academic historian, but he's really kind of turned his back on the academy. Even though the academy still clings to him because he's quite quite famous and successful with his popular. Popular history books, his, his that, stories and books.
0: That difficulty um, of accessibility. It's you got to get it in bums on seats. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, well. That that's it. Um, and you know, he's be, he's become really good at this. But to to the kind of detriment of of truth and. Um, truth in history you know I've written many times that story is not the same as history even though the word is sort of encapsulated into mm. into history you know you take story out of history and it becomes his story and Patrick's story is that he deals in absolutes in you know black black and white characters by that I mean good and bad um, and there's not a lot of nuance in his work and he kind of gravitates towards the popular tropes of Australian history so you know um, proud uh, egalitarian pioneering men um not a lot of black people <laughs> wandering around the continent when when they sort of started um, started claiming the land mm. um you know a benign a benign extinction if you like of of the um, the, the custodians. Uh, he deals in a lot of war stories because hell Australia likes a war story you know we for many years you know there's there's been this hinging of national birth to that date 1915 you know Gallipoli, uh, even though it was a defeat, but it is the um, the invasion we do talk about and celebrate as a nation. Um, 1901 you know um, Patrick Patrick, writes about federation for sure, but for him, federation was a bloodless thing. Well, the truth is federation was the result of a colonial land grab and dispossession and massacres all over the country. Um, so that's that's sort of where Patrick comes from. Uh, he doesn't write about women. Women are excluded from his history. Mm-hmm. Um, migrants are probably excluded. And I think, you know, for me, really, Patrick and his clash with the academy um was something of a metaphor for that broader tension that mm. we have about these seminal dates in Australian history and what came before them. And, you know, 60,000, 80,000, 100,000 years of um, Indigenous civilization that has been ignored by so much of... Um, colonial and post-colonial Australia when it comes to sort of defining nationhood, although that is changing, you know, Mm. there's there's, there's something different in the air at the moment.
0: You talked before about what are we going to give up or what are we prepared to give up? And I mean, it strikes me that before, you know, well before we get to really significant things like land, um, it, it comes down to those, those stories that we hold so dear, the, the, the blamelessness of people who who came to the land and apparently just sort of found it empty. Um, you know, the, the idea that somehow there, it was protection, not brutal murder when killings happened. Um, giving up some of that mythology seems like it's essential to us actually I don't know. Even a, word, a phrase like "making peace" still seems too far away. But whatever the next step is in reconciling history,
1: yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing that that you say there. I mean, there's a lot of talk about reconciliation. Um, Henry Reynolds, you know, he's a he's a historian, mm. perhaps the living white male historian I admire most. Mm. Um, talks in one of his books, I can't remember which one, but he talks about reconciliation being the wrong word. And I think he's quite, quite right. I mean, you can't reconcile unless you've conciliated. Mm. Um, and there's been no conciliation. There's been no, no, none of, no, no, no meeting, no settlement, um, no treaty or treaties. And so we need to conciliate first before there's reconciliation. And, You know, in terms of the stories that pervade, I mean, a few years ago, one of our Prime Ministers, Tony Abbott, said when he was Prime Minister, words to the effect that, well, Australia was barely settled, you know, when, you know, I think it was when Philip arrived or sparsely settled or something like that, um, which kind of gave the impression that, hey, the colonisers weren't really doing anything wrong. In fact, they were doing the land a favour by taking it. And, I mean, it's a retrograde view, sure, but it's one that may not be spoken by too many others as the times change, but it's one that's held by others plenty still. And we're going to see that more and more as the arguments develop about, you know, off the back of the Uluru statement from the heart and um and constitutional recognition. Mm. There's going to be some really ugly opposition to that, I think, ugly racist opposition. There'll be opposition for all sorts of reasons, some of it legitimate, but some of it will reflect that ugly um racial uh anger and envy that's still just below the surface in Australia and which kind of clings jealously to those stories of benign settlement and celebration of, um, you know, what white triumphalism, if you like.
0: Yeah. The arrogance of, of Abbott's statement. I mean, it smacks of, I can come into your house and I can take over your kitchen and your bedroom because you were in the bathroom and the rest of it was sparsely settled. Like just yeah. the, the the necessary leaps of logic. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get a little bit to, to Rennie. Uh, sorry to Patrick because we've oh, talked yeah. a little bit about Rennie and their stories. Their stories are twinned. We have have Rennie as um, this. Again, I hesitate to use words like adventurer and explorer because they tend to to build up this white person moving into space that they perceive to be, oh. in some way. Absent, but Rennie Rennie has has taken his adventures as he finds them, uh, whereas Patrick has very much sat in academia. But both are their writers, although they have contrasting relationships with the establishment. They're both arrogant of their skills. They're jealous of um, protecting their success. They're both troubled in their relationships with their families. Patrick has a particularly difficult story to hear, and you. You don't shy away. Patrick doesn't shy away from his story. He understands that he's been, I guess, the architect of his own downfall. Why was Patrick necessary in telling this story? What what role did he, he serve for you as the discoverer of Rennie's archive? And I, I guess, in a way, a modern mirror of Rennie. I,
1: I guess kind of two, twofold or threefold, really. I mean, first there is, you know, Patrick as part of that metaphor, you know, encapsulating, you know, the jealously guarded you know white settlement history of australia the unblemished view of what happened the uncomplicated view um secondly you know this is really a story someone said to me in an event the other week a woman came up to me and said this is a story about the white patriarchy and colonialism and i hadn't thought about that but she's quite right Mm -hmm. um so there was there is a strong patriarchal element to this story and it's about damaged men Mm -hmm. and how they bequeath their damage to the next generation, so we're dealing with three generation, three generations of damaged white men, mm. um, and one of them, Patrick, is the vehicle for discovering the very messy truth mm. about his grandfather, who was a whole lot of things, um, self deceptive among them. You know, he was a great self deceiver, and he was a great um, he was a great taker of culture too as so many of those people who operated in that sphere were. Mm-hmm. But he was also trying to convince himself that his righteousness would save those people. Could save those people and again you get into that whole story the white savior myth, you know it's 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 absolutely everywhere in our history too. And I wanted to flip that and and Give it a give it an ambiguity. Mm. Um, just who was saving who? Patrick couldn't feel safe anywhere in the world. He was run out of England. Uh, most of Australia was 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 going to be hostile to him too. The only place, perversely, that he could find any kind of succor or comfort was in Jesus Town. Rennie, because he was such a such a misfit and such a such an unpleasant and difficult person in so many ways, was running from his own family, his own wife and kids, and he was a brutal father to his son and a really brutal grandfather, as it turns out, to to Patrick. The only place he could find any comfort was in Jesus' town too. Mm. And I think it's really interesting when you look at some of these places and look at some of the men who gravitated towards them they were often they were often welcomed, uh, even though um, you know the 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 products of their altruism was was negative. So I really wanted to make that point. And anyway, uh, to answer your question, Patrick was really just the the vehicle, the inquirer, mm. if you like, to um, to peel back the layers of of his grandfather um, Rennie and you know this mad archive. Which is kind of a historian's dream, because it had everything in it and so many secrets in it. You know, a historian would love that. For, but for Patrick, it's just overwhelming. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to go there. And he almost finds these tapes which hold the voice of Rennie by accident. But when he starts listening to them, he becomes quite engrossed. And I wanted to give a really sort of oral quality to the book, mm. to the discovery in it. And, uh, it took me a long time to figure out the device for that, but the tapes were just a, were a device in the end, but yeah. I think they kind of work. Okay.
0: They were great. They were great cliff notes for Patrick too. Cause he was, I, I doubt even beyond the novel's conclusion, he's going back in and becoming uh, a much more detailed <laughs> chronicler. Um, the, the thematic metaphor that you mentioned before, and this, in a, this is a moment that I might need to edit out, maybe for spoilers um, later. But I, I had thought of that. Is it too much? to. Is it too much to extend that metaphor? Because I really saw. Um, I don't. I don't want to actually talk about it as Patrick's fate. What What happens through his actions to his family? We, we see this damage being passed from from father to son in the Renmark line. And it felt almost like you were crafting a cautionary tale around this damage, this hubris, this arrogance. And in Patrick, it reaches its zenith and it literally kills off the line. Was that, was that a metaphor for you know, us as um, a, a settler colonial nation? If we don't actually start looking at ourselves, we are. Uh, have I have I've been accused of stretching a metaphor too far, Paul. So you just <laughs> you just go, nope, sorry, broke that one.
1: It's uh it's an interesting question and you know, one of the things that always fascinates me when I when I write a book and fiction particularly is what other people see in it. Um, what other people bring to a reading of it. It ceases to be your book when you kind of launch it out into the world and <laughs> And you know, what you say is perfectly legitimate if that's what you feel about it. And it's made you take that leap of thought, mm. which is what I want people to do. It's why write a book if, if it's not gonna make people ask these sort of questions. Um, you know, I'm gonna take that one away and think about it because I, I honestly hadn't hadn't thought of that before, but it's but your observation is legitimate. Um yeah. Andrew, it was
0: just really interesting to me that that was the particular fate, and when it's revealed, when the full circumstances are revealed, um, yeah, it was really interesting to me exactly how how blind but also culpable Patrick was. Um,
1: Yeah, and you know, someone who's so self-absorbed can't help but hurt the people around them, Mm. Um, and. You know those those people are black black and white you know patrick patrick when he arrives in jesus town you know he's he's hurt he's he's hurting himself but obviously he's the book starts with his son having died mm. in london um he arrives in jesus town and he's kind of got the eye of a bigot at first mm. and all of the indigenous people are being told through his eyes and I did that determinedly that was really kind of conscious because I was never going to inhabit black characters and inhabit indigenous sensibility they were always going to be portrayed through through the indigenous people's eyes and what happened in the end was that Patrick sees himself through their eyes um, but he is hurting them too with his naivety and his total insensibility. Mm. They kind of humor him and laugh him off and give him quite a bit of shit in in their fantastic way, but um, but what he says to them and the way he use them pisses them off yes. as it would.
0: And you you write him so terribly pompous. It's be- beautiful. I mean, <laughs> for a for a novel for a novel that is a little bit spare on humor, just every time Patrick opens his mouth, you can get a good chuckle.
1: Um, before Look, you know. <laughs> I did, and particularly the, the, you know, my Aboriginal friends who've read it laughed mm. a lot. Um, and, you know, I wanted the humour in there. I didn't want it to be didactic or preachy. No. And, you know, that's the last thing I wanted to do. And uh, so that was important to me. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um, but before Before I get to what you do with voice, and
0: you've already touched a little bit on this, I want to – I want to look at what I, I I kind of perceived as maybe a challenge or at least um, something for the reader to think about as they approach because we are dealing with an historian uh, and I guess um, in Rennie we have an anthropologist, we have people who occupy academic realms and you present us through Jesus Town with varying uh, I'll use scare quotes here because, of course, it is fiction, varying source material. And I, I felt like you presented myself, us as readers, with something of that historian's challenge and dilemma because we see everything through the eyes of Patrick. We see Rennie through the eyes of Patrick, um, and Rennie is a notorious embellisher of his own mythology. We have to decide what we make sense of. And this is this is something that hopefully we get taught a little bit in school, but... Um, you know, as we move through the world, it seems too often people take things entirely on face value. Were you hoping, at least a little bit, that as readers we would take on some of the challenge of interpretation and evaluation and learn from Patrick's process?
1: Yeah. um, You know, a real primary aim of this book was to get people to, to ask those questions and to challenge some of the you know, hoary myths of our history and the preconceptions. So, you know, there's a character, and I, and I wanted to do it again gently and not not in a preachy or didactic mm. way. And you know, there's a I character don't... in there. There's a character in there called um, Aki mm. uh, Akmal, who's a former footy player, um, and you know, when he played when he played down south, he was. Kind of the focus, to focus of racial abuse, and this would be in the '90s when, you know, a lot of black players were racially abused in the most dreadful ways, and it hasn't hasn't changed a lot, you know, even though we have the Indigenous Round in the AFL, et cetera, and Aki kind of is talking to Patrick at one point about his time down south and about how, you know, they said. He's just the old cliche of a of a of a black man stuck between two worlds, you know, uh, like um, like Bennelong. I think I think he says. And um, I introduced <laughs> Bennelong because that was the great myth about him too. That Bennelong, you know, once he kind of started rubbing shoulders with the colonisers, he became nothing but an obstreperous drunk and died a tragic figure. Well, the truth about Bennelong was that. Sure, he drank, but, you know, everyone in the colony drank. Mm. Um, But Bennelong died a um, proud Indigenous man with his people over at Kissing Point as a leader of his people, um, you know, wedded to tribal ways and with with more children, more offspring. And really, Aki was making that point about himself too, Mm. that I won't be so easily defined by cliché. And... I guess Aki was a way to examine the past as well, and how that cliche of kind of white mythology might have might have continued all the way through the Australian Dictionary of, Bi- Dictionary of Biography too, in terms of battlelog. Yeah, if that answers your question. Somewhere. No. Yeah,
0: um, I wanted to ask a little bit about how you approached um, telling voices, and oh, no, you've you've already acknowledged that the story is is told through Patrick's eyes, Patrick's um, encounters, but how you went about telling and um, putting voices into the characters of the people. Um, Jericho is is a prominent figure. He was something of a, a ward to Rennie. Oh, that's probably as much as we can say about that in terms of the narrative. He figures prominently, though, as an antagonist, and I, I read him as a bit of a moral compass for Patrick. He was, a, he was actually a terrific character. When I first met Jericho, I... I kind of shied away from Patrick and thought, "Why can't you tell Jericho's story?" And there are many reasons for that. It would have been fantastic. Um, what was your process in creating voices like Aki's, voices like Jericho's? Did you, did you consult? Did you? How did you ensure that you walked that line between representation and
1: appropriation? So, I was really clear at the outset that, again, that I wasn't going to inhabit um, capital B black characters that i could only i could only write them through white eyes um and i was also really clear that having decided to write this book that i was going to own it i was not going to put the responsibility shift the responsibility onto um uh indigenous people to to own you know my my work i had a number of um indigenous friends read it um, at various stages and um, and I said to them, give it to me straight, you know, don't save me, but, you know, if you see something that's really off here that I've got wrong about any characterization, please tell me and I'll have a think about it. Um, and that didn't happen, but um, the other thing I guess in – kind of writing the historical um black characters, you know, Machu, etc. Um, behind me on these bookshelves there are metres of books by and about, you know, the milieu of anthropologists and adventurers, call them what you will, who were operating uh in the 20th century. And their characterisations of the people they came across are, are very sort of ethnocentric, you know, mm-hmm. focusing on their looks and all that sort of stuff. So when I wrote um, the black characters as seen and described by Rennie, by the old man, I was really reflecting what was in that history. he' mm-hmm. call it history in inverted commas, you know, what was in the observations as put on the page in those terribly ethnographic and often quite disturbing books. Um, I guess with Jericho, Jericho is a great character and, you know, he's worthy of a book in himself. I don't think that's for me to write, mm. um, you know, and obviously I don't mean someone else is going to come and write a book about Jericho, but but I think people like him um, are amazing. And he is, he's no one I know, but he feels familiar to me, if you know what I mean. Um, they're, um there are elements of, of him that are familiar to me from other people I've known and observed. I mean he's a he's a prominent black activist, you know, he's a he's a land rights activist, he's uh he's uh he's taking on the mining companies, he's flirted with going into politics, um, but decided he's gonna hang with his people instead. And he's he's a repatriation activist. Um you know look look around the country there are people like that but none of them are him
0: yeah i mean i was very i was fascinated by what you said there about trying to encounter and deal with things in in your novel you described that might be a bit bit off but also that you know the history if you're going to write an anthropologist writing he was a bit off and i noted in your afterword that you tried to uh, maintain some of that authenticity that that we would uh, capitalise, we would capitalise when we um, are referring to First Nations or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but that would not be something, like this is a very simple example but easy to illustrate, that would not be something that Rennie would think of out of um, out of respect or acknowledgement. And he is <laughs> no. just, yeah.
1: No. <laughs> no, so, you know, yeah. when, when Rennie writes about these people, he writes Aboriginal with a lowercase a, for example, and he would refer to the women... And the kids in a way that would be totally offensive to many indigenous people mm. in Australia today, and I can absolutely understand why. And for me, kind of, yeah, I did say in the author note that that I wanted to to stick with some authenticity to reflect you know the the anthropological more and ethnographic mores of the day. but, there's a balance in that, and I really, I really had to find it. I didn't want to labour it, um, and uh, there were there were words I didn't use um, that are, that are all through these books. And you know, mm-hmm. interestingly, I was at the National Library of Australia. I did a creative writing fellowship there in 2016 to to get this book started, and and I was coming across anthropology books in that collection that. Had pages ripped out of them, um, and I found that really, really interesting. And I know what pages they were, and they were often um, pages that went to intensely private, personal stuff that 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 infringed on secret, sacred um, uh, ritual, um, and were absolutely offensive to um, to descendants mm. and. I don't know who ripped the pages out, but it but was really illustrative to me. So there was stuff I was n- not going to say, not going to write.
0: I was really fascinated with the way that you play with ideas of, of power and mythology, uh, particularly of story, the way story has this incredible way of carrying power and, and transmitting a mythology. And I'm actually t- talking here about the myth of Rennie. Who Rennie is, um, and the way he is, I guess, popularly understood, and the conundrum that Patrick has in trying to to unpick the idea of the, I guess, the the, the hard, harsh grandfather that he remembers, and the person who supposedly, and I'm going to use very big scare quotes here, um, the the person that saved the people, and even even potentially made treaty with them, because of course that would be. A huge thing um, in in our nation. I wondered, though, uh, thinking thematically, did this did this myth of Rennie was that standing in for you for I guess a larger colonial narrative that existed throughout the the nineteenth century and even for some people today that First Nations people were were saved the so called what what you what you talked about there the civilizing influence and Rennie was kind of you know in his mythology that's what was happening.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I really did want to examine the the saviour trope mm. that pervades Australian settlement history, post mm. invasion settlement history, um, and you know the the mission experience, for example, was really kind of kind of varied. For for some, it was okay. For some, it was good. For some, it was mixed. For some, it was really negative and really violent and oppressive. For many. Um but the mission the missionaries, as cruel as some of them were, were there because they wanted to, to save these people. Mm. They were driven by um by I I guess their, their very strong sense mm. that they were saving souls and saving people from you know, some of them thought were there because they wanted to save the the the, the people the peoples from massacres um and there were other you know there were other things that happened too so um you know Lachlan Macquarie the the um much louder great civilizer of Sydney you know he was the father of the stolen generations he opened a a home for children where out out in Parramatta where where he took young indigenous children that he saved, again, you know, scare quotes, as you say, from massacre sites, from the sites of massacres that, that he ordered. Mm. Um, so the saviour trope is huge in our history. Um, and I really did want to to poke that and to flip it mm. um, and to make people think about that, I guess.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing you definitely got me thinking about was the way – I think any reader can recognise in Jesus Town when we when we encounter through Rennie's narrative that the 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 religious figures were or could be brutal. The ones you portray could be quite brutal, and that their their type of salvation was was actually incredibly harmful. But then Rennie also he sh- he shamelessly as a as a journalist he uses. Uh, moral outrage in cities. He he talks about how he's going to write articles that are that are going to um, g up people in cities who have never met, uh, perhaps never met an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, but they will they will their bleeding hearts will want to see justice for these people. Um, but inherent in that, and inherent, I think, in in what I saw in Rennie was this sense of superiority that the saviour feels over the saved. Rennie through. Everything I read about him in all his archives, in all of all of Patrick's remembrances, he he still had that sense of superiority, and I wondered, as we you know, as we speak to a metropolitan audience who who feel deeply about these things, but maybe don't always examine where that feeling comes from. Is that feeling of superiority of the savior over the saved is that still a huge barrier in the national
1: conversation? Look, I, I think the word for any is righteous, mm. <laughs> yeah, and you know. Righteous as hell. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to sort of judge other people's motives. Um, and, you know, in some ways it's not, not for me to say. It's for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to to, to make that judgment about the motives of non-Indigenous people who are active in, in sort of um, active proponents for for Aboriginal rights, if you like. Um, I think the thing about Rennie was that, you know, you can be good and bad, you can be complex and you can have, you can have good motives, righteous motives, and the consequences of them can be really, really negative Mm. uh, as they were um, with, with Rennie and just, just how true his story of saving the people is it's pretty ambiguous. You know?
0: mm.
1: It's pretty unclear in the end. Um, so yeah, if there's a parallel with, you know, current non-Indigenous society, then, then the people can find and then that's okay with me. Yeah.
0: Mm. I was, I was struck with the, the difficulty we get ourselves into when we, we seek to help people for our own agenda, not theirs. when, we we try to do a good thing, but as soon as what we want out of it is challenged, how we can change, how we can flip, and how that good deed can can suddenly start to look not so good. And this is this is no particular point in the narrative. This is how you had me reflecting um, on myself, on our society through the narrative of Jesus Town.
1: I think it's it's interesting to go to motive particularly when we're dealing with some of these characters in the early to mid 20th century, who like Rennie believed that they were, you know, quite fallaciously witnessing the, you know, air quotes again, vanishment of the race, unquote, and that it was their duty as, um, as intellectuals, as collectors, as sophisticated men to, chronicle the, quote, race, unquote, that was vanishing. Mm. And this is why they collected everything. Collected being kind of a euphemism for style.
0: Mm.
1: Um, You know, languages, sure, but art and artefacts, weapons, human remains was all justified on the basis that they could collect. And they weren't just collecting. They were doing it competitively. They were hoarding. Mm was the more that one um, person might have for his collection or his institution, the more kudos he got, the more recognition he got for being the chronicler of the vanishing people. Uh, and, of course, the people didn't vanish. They resisted, as they still do, and they thrived. <laughs> um you know, and to the point where we are at today where the Indigenous population is expanding rapidly Mm. as each successive census shows. So, yeah, I think it's a long answer to a short question, but it's about motive, right?
0: Yeah. And I think some of those points you've brought us back to there, they bring us to your incredible climax, and that means there is nothing left to say other than I am speaking with Paul Daly. His incredible new novel is Jesus Town. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about this incredible story and and where Paul takes it, you're going to have to go out and read it. (laughs) <laughs> please do please yeah. do yeah get out. get out to a bookshop out right now paul you have been incredibly incredibly generous with your time today and indulging my my wildest theories about your story i really appreciate everything you've you've said today
1: listen thanks for your reading of it Andrew, and thanks for such considered questions too it was great talking to you that's it for this
0: great conversation with Paul Daly. Paul's new book is called Jesus Town. It's out now from Allen and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Ganangara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means there will be a new Final Draft every week. Interviews, book reviews, industry news. That's a lot of rhyming there. <laughs> My name's Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.